Love the hymns. Some hymns up in here today. Older language, but man, some rich, rich words. It's good to be with you today. Hey, grab a Bible. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our series walking through this book of the Old Testament. This is our third week now, and so I want to do a little bit of recap together before we press on into what's next. But rather than you just listening to me, why don't you take a second, turn again to someone around you, and talk about what we've seen so far in Jonah chapter 1. What's been going on? What have we seen? What's happening? If you haven't been here for a couple weeks, hopefully you're sitting by someone who has. If not, maybe just read through Jonah 1. Go ahead, talk together. We'll come back in a couple minutes, okay? I think we're going to bring it back together. Here, lots of lively discussion. All right. Jonah chapter 1, what have we seen? We see God calls to Jonah and tells him to do what? Go to Nineveh, preach against this wicked city, which includes an opportunity, we would think, for Nineveh to repent and to to turn from their sin and to trust God. But Jonah does what? Runs away. Right? He goes track star in the opposite direction. The opposite direction. Says no, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh and give them an opportunity to repent. So Jonah's on this boat heading to Tarshish when the Lord sends this storm on the sea. So much of a, oh, a terrifying storm. So much so that these sailors who are professionals we would have to think are are terrified thinking they're going to die so they toss Jonah overboard into the water where we would expect he's going to meet his watery end and then the seas are calm the storm dies down and the sailors are worshiping God that's what we've seen so far let's pray as we prepare to see what comes next Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us and corrects us and challenges us. God, as we come to your word, would you open our eyes to understand and to see what you would have us learn today? Thank you for time together as a church. We are so grateful for you, for your love, and 
grace. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we jump into the text, I want to share with you this article I came across as I was preparing for the message today. It was written by a pastor in the UK, and he was talking about how the people in his church, and he was trying to promote this opportunity for prayer in the church. Basically, after the church services, they would have people up front who wanted to, to minister to people by praying for them. So they would offer for anyone to come forward and be prayed for. But no one was really taking advantage of that opportunity, and so they were trying to brainstorm, he and this group of leaders, how could we get more people to come and uh, take advantage of a great opportunity to have someone pray for you? And when they were having that conversation, someone in the leadership team said, well, you know, I'm not so sure I want to take advantage of that opportunity. I don't know if I want to come forward and have someone pray for me. And they said, well, why not? And they said, I wouldn't want people to assume that I have a problem. I wouldn't want other people to think that somehow my spiritual life is not as put together as it should be. I wouldn't want people to kind of give me the side eye or, or doubt my faith or my standing in the church. And this pastor thought about that and he was really troubled by that response that people would have such a, a disposition towards this opportunity. And he realized he preached a lot about grace. And the church talked a lot about the grace of God, which is what God welcomes us and saves us and forgives us by no work of our own, but through the work of Jesus, right? Through faith in Christ, we are made righteous and can stand before God. And so built into that concept of grace is the fact that we don't have it all together. And so he said, we talk about that a lot, but then in people's experience, it wasn't coming out. They were still hiding from one another, not wanting to be seen. They wanted to perform in front of other people, to look spiritual, to have their flaws hidden. And I thought, that's not just a problem for this church in the UK. I mean, this is probably a problem anywhere the church gathers. We have this tendency to want to hide when we realize our lives are not all that they should be. We get uncomfortable thinking about how will people treat me if they really knew me? If they really knew where I'd been and what I'd done, would they look at me differently? Would there be a place for me in this church? Or maybe we get uncomfortable when we look at other people and their lives are a bit messy, not quite as neat and tidy as we would like it to be. How do we respond when people are a mix of faith and doubt, obedience and disobedience, piety and protest? How does God want us to think about such situations in ourselves or in the lives of others? I think Jonah chapter 2 is going to help us see the heart of God in such a situation because as we jump into Jonah 2, we'll see that Jonah's heart is not so neat and tidy. It's a bit messy. There's a bit of tension in chapter 2. Let's jump in and you'll, you'll see what I mean. Actually, starting in verse 1, verse 17, the last verse, says this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, and the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up. From the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So where we left off last week, Jonah was in the midst of this storm, tossed into the sea to what we would expect would be his watery grave. But then we read, before we get to his prayer, he's swallowed up by a giant fish, a great fish, a a large fish. God does something miraculous, something extraordinary, something that we would not expect. And so we got to talk about the fish for a minute. Can we talk about the fish for a minute? This is a memorable part of the story. It's part of the story that people love, that has captured the imagination of so many over the centuries. And yet, for many, this is a difficult part of the book, maybe a stumbling block for some to actually believing that this is true. Because fish don't generally swallow people whole and house them for three days and then vomit them up on the land. Right? This isn't normal. And so sometimes people are challenged. Is this uh, a fairy tale? Is this, it's not historical. It's impossible because this doesn't happen normally. So what can we say about the fish? First, we don't know if it's a whale. The text just tells us it's a great fish, a big fish, a big aquatic creature. Maybe it's a whale. Maybe it's another species. We don't really know. But let's say this to start. This event with the fish should be no less difficult, no more difficult, excuse me, to believe than the other miracles that we see throughout the Bible, right? Scripture is filled with things that don't normally happen. We look in the Old Testament, we see this throughout. We think of the Exodus, Moses leading the people out of slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, right? It's not a normal event. We see in the New Testament, Jesus walking on water, Jesus healing people, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus himself coming back to life. The Bible is full of the miraculous. These aren't normal events, and I think we, we sometimes go down the wrong road when we try and make the whole fish thing seem normal. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about, well, you know, what species of fish would have a big enough jaw that a man could fit through, and how much oxygen would have to be in that belly to, to you know, allow this to happen? What possible species would be big enough to, to make this possible? And, and I think that thought process is kind of going in the wrong direction, um, kind of wastes a little bit of our time because the whole point of this is that it's, 
It's miraculous. And so rather than thinking about how to make the extraordinary ordinary or how to make the uh, abnormal normal, we can just look at this as, as a miracle of God, as a uh, God intervening in the natural world, in human history. It says he appointed this fish. He provided this fish. And so the whole point is that this is something not normal. It's, it's miraculous. It's an act of God. The second thing we should say about the fishiness of this story is that Jesus had something to say about Jonah. If we look to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus speaks of Jonah. He says this as he's being questioned by the Pharisees and the people in his day. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. I'm not going to give you guys a sign, he says. None will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and with this generation condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. There's a lot we could say about these verses, but... What I want us to notice is that Jesus speaks about Jonah and about the fish and about Nineveh as if they were real events. A real Jonah seems to be a real fish, a real city of Nineveh. And so if Jesus is speaking and thinking that way about the story of Jonah, then I would suggest that we should as well and see this as something that actually happened, even if it seems unbelievable or seems rather All right, so with that being said, we could talk about more about the fish. I think we should leave it there for now. If you have questions, we'd love to talk with you more about this and how we can think about it, but that's enough for now. What we see after the fish, Jonah's swallowed. He's in the belly of the fish, as miraculous as it sounds, for three days. And what we see in the rest of the chapter is this prayer, right? A prayer of Jonah inside this living submarine. And this is where things get a little bit messy, because as you notice, as we read through the prayer, some of the things look rather admirable that Jonah says. We would applaud Jonah for some of the piety, the faithfulness that he shows. He says some, some good things, but there's also some parts of the prayer that should make us a little uneasy or leave us scratching our head a little bit. It seems like some things are left out. There's this tension going on, so I want you to see what I mean as we go. First, the good things. What are the good things we notice in this prayer? Well, first of all, verse 2, he prays. He prays to the Lord. In my distress, he says, I called to the Lord. If you were here last week, you remember the storms raging. The sailors, these pagan sailors that are there with Jonah, they're praying to their gods. They eventually pray to the God of Israel. But Jonah never prays. He never says a word to the Lord until now. Until now. He finally prays. It's as if once he hits that water and starts sinking to the bottom, he realizes things just got real. Things are not going well. And it's his desperation that leads him to pray. Right? We've been there. Sometimes I've been there where 
things are difficult in my life, and I realize that hours or days later, then I'm like, I should pray. I should pray about this. When really, to be honest, I should have been praying all along. Why did I not first start in prayer? Why did I not bring this to the Lord sooner? It's almost as if sometimes there's a level of discomfort or desperation that has to come in our lives to, to drive us to our knees before God. And that's what we see in Jonah. But good job, Jonah. He prays. He cries out to the Lord. This is, this is a good thing. Next, we see that it's his desperation that drives him to the Lord rather than away from the Lord. Right? He's tossed into the ocean sinking down, and you see in the passage over and over again, he's describing his desperate circumstances, right? Look at it, verse 2 through 7. In my distress, I called to the Lord. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called. In the Hebrew, it's the word sheol, the, the place, the realm of the dead, where the dead are, not the land of the living. That's where Jonah is experiencing this. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. I've been banished from your sight. The engulfing waters, verse 5, threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever as if he's a prisoner in this realm of the dead. There are bars preventing his escape. Because my life was in the pit and my life, verse 7, was ebbing away. Over and over again. Desperation, bad circumstances, things are not going well from Jonah using these vivid images, seaweeds wrapped around my neck, I'm drowning, I'm at the depths of the ocean. And this is where we could probably relate with Jonah at points in our lives. We have experienced similar feelings of desperation and brokenness, being overwhelmed by the needs of life, feeling like we're drowning, trapped, exhausted. We can relate. Sometimes this is because of our own doing, our own sin like Jonah, our own rebellion has brought destruction upon our lives. But sometimes this is simply because life happens. Unexpected medical concerns come up. We lose a loved one. Unexpected financial crisis. So it's a mixed bag of things that might bring us to this place of desperation. Problems in our marriage, problems with our kids, challenges financially, stress day in and day out, overwhelming burdens. We can get what Jonah's feeling here. As he pretty thoroughly describes this place, life is caught up to him. But notice in that place what he does. And he calls out to the Lord. The desperation does not drive him away from God or to blaming God. It drives him toward God in prayer. Proverbs 19 puts it this way. A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart 
rages against the Lord. This person's own foolishness wrecks their life, basically, but their heart rages against the Lord. Blame God for what's going on. But with Jonah, we don't see that. Jonah comes to the Lord in prayer rather than raging against God and turning away from him even further. And so we have to say again, good job, Jonah. Really, you you cried out to God in your distress. Your desperation drove you to the Lord. Fantastic. Maybe that's what some of us need to do today. We're in desperation. We're feeling overwhelmed with life. And our response, like Jonah, can just call out to the Lord. And maybe that prayer is as simple as, Lord, help. Lord, help. Sometimes it's hard to even come up with many more detailed words than that. Just, Lord, help. So we can relate with Jonah here. There's more. At the end of this prayer, you see verse 8 and 9. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Okay, so he closes this prayer with expressing gratitude. He's grateful to God for what God has done for him. He talks about some kind of commitment, vows and sacrifices. He makes some kind of commitment to God. Declares that salvation comes from the Lord. It's God who saves and God alone. We would say amen. He's theologically correct there. So we'd say good job, Jonah. Doing some things well. He prays. He lets the desperation drive him to the Lord. He makes some kind of commitment to God to obey him or to make sacrifices to him. Say, all right, salvation comes from the Lord. But before we go giving Jonah any medals or naming any holidays after him, there's another side to this passage and to Jonah that we need to see. There are some less commendable parts of his prayer in chapter 2. And maybe you notice them as we read through some things that seem a little bit off or maybe some things that seem like they're missing. The most obvious or glaring part of this is that he never really, really confesses his sin. He never really explains his wrongdoing, asks for forgiveness for his rebellion, for running from God, for obeying or disobeying God. He never really mentions that in his prayer. He's grateful for being rescued, but doesn't show really remorse for his sin. Look at verse 3. You hurled me into the depths. This is the closest he comes. I've been banished from your sight. And so in some way he recognizes, okay, there's judgment on me. From God, but he doesn't really mention his part in it. You banish me, God. You're judging me. Yeah. Let's talk about why that's happening, right? When you give your kids discipline or ground your kids, you probably want them to have some sense of, of why, of, of recognizing or owning their part in the whole fiasco, whatever it might be. But Jonah seems to say, ah, let's, let's not talk about that. God, thanks for saving me. Okay. I've heard it said that when you mess up, you should fess up. 
But Jonah's not fessing up. So we think, Jonah, not good. Not good, Jonah. There's more. My favorite piece, I think, of this prayer is verse 4, where he says, I've been banished from your sight. And what's the next part? Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Okay, where are his eyes looking? Towards the temple. Where's the temple? Jerusalem. It's home. Saying, Lord, I'm looking to worshiping you in the temple. I'm looking forward to going home. My eyes are set on going home. But where is Jonah supposed to be? Be in Nineveh. So he says these really religious words. God, I can't wait to get home and worship you. I can't wait to go home and be in the temple. And it's like, Jonah, you're not supposed to be in the temple. You're supposed to be in Nineveh. Not good, Jonah. And then at the end of verse 9, he says again, I will say salvation comes from the Lord, which again sounds good. He's right that salvation comes from the Lord, but salvation for who? Just for you, Jonah? Just for you and your people and people like you? Remember, he's running from God, offering salvation to the Ninevites. Salvation salvation comes from the Lord for me, for my people. Whereas God says salvation is for the nations. Jonah doesn't seem to recognize that. So we say, not good, Jonah. Not good. So much of this prayer is religious talk, and it sounds good. And in some ways, it is good. I mean, much of his prayer is just taken directly from other psalms, directly from psalms in the Old Testament. But a lot of it still leaves us scratching our head, saying, wait a minute, Jonah. seems like there's some pieces missing from this prayer. And we'll see later in the book as it goes on that his attitude, his heart is still hard, towards God, is, is bitter towards God and bitter towards the people of Nineveh. He never quite gets it. So it leaves us wondering, what in the world do we do with this, with this, this tension, this reality that Jonah is this complex, conflicted man in process? He's in process. He hasn't fully arrived. He's not fully obedient, and yet there's some good mixed in there. What do we do with that? I appreciate this chapter so much because I think, again, we can relate with Jonah. Not just in his sinking to the depths of the ocean and being overwhelmed, but in the reality of being in process. Not having fully arrived in our walk with the Lord. I shared the content of this, of this message and kind of what I was preaching on with, with another pastor that I know and the tension that's there in the text. And he responded and said, you know, Jonah sounds a lot like a human being. And I was like, you're right. (laughs) He does. We can relate with Jonah, the highs and the lows, the good and the bad mixed in with our hearts, the faith and the doubt, the obedience And the disobedience all kind of being a mixed bag there together in our hearts before the Lord. We read our Bibles, maybe we spend more time in prayer, but then we still notice ourselves being 
impatient with our kids or selfish with our time, or maybe we, we start serving more in our church or serving in the community, being obedient in that way, but then we find ourselves bitter or angry or in different parts of our lives we're dealing with addictions or, or lust or greed. We, we find ourselves experiencing joy in the Lord that He's saved us and being truly grateful for that, but then we see worry and anxiety take over our hearts and our lives at different points in our week. We have good days where there's growth, and we see the growth in our lives spiritually and what God's done in our hearts, and then we have bad days where it feels like we took five steps back, and sometimes it leaves us reeling and wondering, Lord, what is going on? What is going on in my heart? And what I want us to see about this is how God responds to Jonah. Because in my distress, I called to the Lord, and, and he answered. From the deep realm of the dead, I called, and you listened to my cry. Later, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord, brought up, excuse me, brought my life up from the pit. But God, I prayed to you. And you heard me, you listened to me, you answered me, you rescued me. Jonah didn't save himself. He didn't swim his way back to the surface. No, he was rescued by the work of God, by God answering his prayer, by God not forsaking Jonah. Eventually Jonah is vomited back onto dry land by this fish, as verse 10 tells us, the Lord commanded and it happened. So we see in Jonah chapter 2 the heart of God on display. That a cry to him, whether it's from a pagan sailor in the midst of a storm, or whether it's from a rebellious prophet in the belly of a fish or the depths of the sea, that cry is heard. God listens. And responds whenever we turn to him. And he's gracious with us in process. When we are like Jonah. This is the doctrine of God's grace. That he blesses us with what we do not deserve. We do not earn or deserve his favor and his blessing. We have not earned the right to be rescued. And yet God in his grace gives us those things if we trust him. Through faith in Christ, we're rescued and forgiven and, and reconciled to this God. Even when our hearts are still a mess in so many ways and still in process, he still calls us his own. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel that we celebrate every week, that we're justified by faith, made righteous with God by faith, not by works. Reconciled to God through faith. We're saved by grace, not our own works, not our own efforts, even when we stumble like Jonah. And this, of course, brings us as well to the doctrine of sanctification. We're justified by faith, made righteous with God, adopted into the family of God through faith, and then 
our lives as believers is a walk of sanctification, which means God making us more like Jesus, shaping us into the image of Jesus so that our thoughts and our actions and our heart, our behaviors, more and more look like him. But the point of sanctification is that it's a process. It's a process, and God is patient with us as he leads us through that process. Now, this doesn't mean we just throw our hands up and say, God's gracious, I'm in process, I'm going to do whatever I want. That's, that's not the point. The point is that we should earnestly seek the Lord and pursue holiness and obedience, try to obey God and all that he's called us to, to live our lives for his glory, but that as we stumble and fall short and kind of work our way through it, God has grace for us. We still belong to him. He's still kind to us. One pastor put it this way, our testimony is not, I was a mess, then Jesus showed up, now I've got everything put together. That's not our testimony. It says, rather, it's I was a mess, and I still am in many ways, but I'm a mess that belongs to Jesus, a mess that he is committed to sorting out. He came to me, has stuck with me, continues to be my all in all. I'm a mess that God is sorting out. I'm in process. So know today, if you are like Jonah, you look at your life and it's a mixed bag, know that God loves you, God has grace for you, that if you put your faith and trust in him and are walking with him, you are his, adopted, you belong to him, even as ups and downs come in your life. And the foundation for all of this is the work of Jesus Christ. Jonah 2 points us forward to that work, doesn't it? We read Matthew 12, Jesus talking about Jonah. Remember what he said? As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus looks back to Jonah and he says that whole fishy thing with the fish is actually a symbol. It's pointing forward to my work. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, so the Lord Jesus died on a cross. And on the third day, rose again in victory. And so we believe that we too, through faith in Christ, will be made new, given new life. And so we can look to Jonah and see, yes, God is patient with us when we're like Jonah, when we're in process, when we're a mixed bag of good and bad and everything in between. But Jonah chapter 2, don't miss this, also points us forward to Jesus Christ, to his life, his death, burial, and his resurrection. He is the one that we worship today as our Savior and King. And I encourage you today, if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never said, yes, Jesus, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for welcoming me. 
that's you, I encourage you to make that decision today. If you can pray to him now, acknowledging your sin and asking for his grace. I'd love to talk with you more about that after the service, if that's you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Thanks for revealing your heart to us. Thank you for being so patient, so gracious with even rebellious prophets like Jonah, who kind of gets it but kind of doesn't. Lord, we can relate. We need your grace and your forgiveness. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your patience with us. Would you continue to make us more like you for your glory and for the good of this world? We love you. In Jesus' name.